The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Hear God's word as I read beginning today at Luke 2:39 through the end of the chapter. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was twelve years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. And after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends, and when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days... They found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Our Father, help us to come to grips more and more with the unique wonder that your Son was in this world, that we might adore Him all the more and obey Him that much better. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been a fan of the TV show Jeopardy for a very long time. To me, it's the only game show around where you actually have to know something to uh, win the money. And I like to see the fact that people that have actually learned things in this world get honored once in a while. Last month in February, I watched the special match that went on. I'm sure some of you saw it. The all-time Jeopardy champ, Ken Jennings, winner of 74 consecutive games, came back for the first time. Very quick-minded young man. Also, Lancaster County's own Brad Rutter, the man who had won the most money on the show over the years, was there. And you thought, wow, nobody's going to defeat these two guys. And then you met the third contestant. Because this special match was a match in which the extra contestant was Watson, the IBM supercomputer. 
If you didn't hear about this, IBM brought in a computer they had built and developed in their Department of Artificial Intelligence. They've been working on these things for years. You computer folks, I believe I'm correct that it had 39 servers in this room-sized computer. Required a special cooling system just to cool all that brain power down. And Watson, we are told, pushed the limits of artificial intelligence to almost eerie and very human-like extremes as he played on Jeopardy. Actually, February's special match turned out to be not very interesting. It was absolutely no contest. Watson buried the champions very easily in a couple days of competition. Now, why did I think of Watson the computer as I studied Luke chapter 2? If you'll hold on for a few minutes, I'll tell you before I'm done. But first of all, just consider the span and the context of Luke 2. It began with the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, with his glory being declared by angels, by shepherds, and then continuing to see Simeon and Anna prophesying and declaring the special nature of this child, the son of Mary, whom she and Joseph brought before the Lord in the temple. People were saying, one and all, and angels were saying, this is the Christ. Look what God is doing. He has brought his Messiah. And now, as the chapter closes, something that seems almost anticlimactic, but it really should not be, if you stop and consider that what Luke has recorded that I read this morning is the only portion we have in the four Gospels that tells us anything that happened to Jesus between being a baby and being a man. And in fact, the only recorded words of Jesus from infancy, or of course he didn't speak as an infant, but the only recorded words before he was a man are what he says in verse 49 of our text today. So this is a pretty important passage. Now, the overall subject here is the true nature, the human nature especially, of Jesus, a topic that has vexed the theologians for many centuries as they discussed it and tried to define it from the information the Bible gives us. A climax, a crossroads time in that understanding came in the year 451, a council of the early church at Chalcedon. The Council of Chalcedon was a very important time when scholars finally sat it down and, and you might say, settled the matter that had been in great debate, although that didn't necessarily clear up every error. But they stated there that Christ had two natures, his humanity and his divinity existing equally in him indivisible and yet not confused. He was fully God and fully man in one person. One of many scriptures that contributed to that would be Colossians 2.9. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. He's perfect God and perfect man. The Council of Chalcedon got the statement right according to the scriptures. But the problem for people of all time, and and today as well, is keeping your balance in this thing. 
we always end up stressing the humanity of Christ or the divinity of Christ, and we can almost never seem to keep the scales in a right equilibrium. And the idea of Jesus especially as being a real man, like us in every possible way, except for sin, is something that evangelicals even grapple with. We have a serious belief in Christ. We affirm his deity, but we struggle with how to keep this in balance. I've asked classes before when we talk about the doctrine of Christ. Why do you think that if a, the little boy, Jesus, was out trotting around as a four-year-old and he fell down on some gravel, that he would cut his knee? Why, do you think that Jesus, at the age of five or six or seven, had to have Joseph and Mary come alongside him and whatever schooling he actually had, probably within the family, and teach him to form the letters of the Hebrew alphabet because he didn't know them as something intuitively in his brain? Do you think that the thought life of Jesus ever led him down a path of tempting him to do something wrong? Well, the answer to all those questions is yes. This was a real human boy. He could get a cut knee. He had to be schooled. And he was able to be tempted as we are. And yet, we conservative Christians, wanting to defend his deity, tend to very much end up being like uh, famous or infamous groups in church history, the, the Docetists and the Gnostics, who all thought Jesus was kind of a spirit person come to, from heaven, and, and he didn't really walk on the earth. He walked maybe one inch above it, never quite coming into contact with it. And he looked human, and he seemed human, but they would say, no, he's not human. He's God. He's sort of like Superman with a big G on his chest for God. Yes, they would say he's like Watson, the supercomputer. His humanity functions with a a, a mechanical perfection. He knows every answer. He's ahead of everybody. He doesn't have the weaknesses and the troubles that we have. But the Bible reports to us in many places take as one important indicator, Hebrews 4.15. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. That's so hard to grapple with, isn't it? How could Jesus be, for example, tempted with lust for a woman? We want to be very careful. He did not sin. He did not lust after a woman sinfully, but he was tempted in every way, as any man is. How do you draw that line? That's very hard to understand, isn't it? Martin Luther said we must be careful and be sure that we draw our portrait of Christ, as he said it, deep into his flesh. Be careful that we don't have the the Gnostic ghost or Watson the computer. That's not Jesus. And so as we look today at this text of Luke 2.39 to 52, I want you to see a real boy evidencing real humanity, and yet giving us the hint that he also was fully God. First of all, my point is that Jesus was a real boy becoming a real man. Our text in verse 40 says, he lived in Nazareth, this little town. He grew and became strong. He grew 
He grew. He wasn't instantaneously a 30-year-old with a 30-year-old mind. He had to grow in wisdom and stature, verse 52 adds. Think for a minute about what it means to grow in stature. That's the physical part. To go from being a, a little baby in arms to a man, however tall he was, and whatever he looked like, we don't know any of that, but he had to grow. He had to change as a human being does. I had a great illustration of growth in stature with one family in a church a couple congregations ago back in the 1980s. I remember visiting with this family when they were putting their house up for sale. They'd lived in this house for almost 30 years and had raised their three children there. And I was, I had a purpose for being there to visit with them. And, and they were talking about the upcoming house sale. And the father said, you know, pastor, we've told the realtor there's one part of this house that's not for sale. Uh, he obviously wanted to tell me, but so I said, well, what's that? And he said, he said, come on, I'll show you. And we went in the kitchen where there was an older home and it had a pantry attached with a separate door. And he opened the door and showed me the inside of the wooden pantry door. And it obviously was, was all gouged up. It was a mess. And I realized that the gouges were in three vertical rows, starting pretty low and, and going on up to, to near six feet or so. And it was easy to understand what those were. The gouges had dates penciled beside them. And they represented, of course, the three children. That father had put his child, each child on every birthday with his back against that door and had made a mark and then took a chisel and actually made it permanent. And he had a permanent record of the growth in stature of his children. He said, Pastor, this goes with me. We're buying a new door. He obviously had a great emotional attachment to that. How often do we ever think about the idea that Jesus of Nazareth was at some time a 12 or 18-month-old crawling around on the dirt floor of his home. Do you ever think about the fact, one of my uh, grandchildren right now is in the classic situation of no front teeth, uh, first grade or so, and Jesus was in that situation. He had to lose his baby teeth and get his permanent teeth like any other child. I am sure that this probably happened, although I, of course, don't know it with, with verification, but Jesus, in being in Joseph's carpenter shop, surely picked up the tools and, and as he was allowed to, imitated what Joseph was doing and making things. And I, it just had to happen at some point that he had his thumb here and the hammer here and went, bam, and hit his thumb. He was a boy growing in stature, rolling around on the ground with his friends, running around, having a good time. If Jesus got the stomach virus, let's not get too graphic, but Mary got his breakfast all over her. He was a baby growing into a boy, growing into a man. He ate food. Real food. He probably liked some food better than other food. He had to sleep. He got exhausted. He wasn't play-acting when he was sleeping. He needed to sleep. You see, the Bible gives us to believe that Jesus needed a true body of flesh in order to be the sinless representative of real men and women who sin in our bodies and with our minds all the time. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He bore our sins in his body. It takes pains to specify. He bore our sins in his body 
on the tree, that real body was a male body. It bled. Imagine the muscle cramps after two or three hours on that cross. And that real body not only was able to die, it did die. And that was all part of God's calling for him. Now, there's another thing to notice here. Besides growing in stature, it says he grew in wisdom. Here's the whole category of intellectual growth. And not just learning facts. You know you do well on Jeopardy if you know a lot of facts, and especially you not only have to know them, you've got to be fast recalling them. That's the real key to Jeopardy. Well, do you really think that Jesus, the two- or three-year-old sitting around, was conjugating Latin verbs and uh, studying calculus? He had to learn that two plus two equals four, or whatever the equivalent of, of Israelite arithmetic was all about. He had to learn facts of how things work, how to use tools, what people are doing, what was the law of God, what's in the Scripture. And then he had to grow in his maturity and his discernment to apply these things in a wise and careful manner. And wonder of wonders, there actually were things that in terms of his humanness, Jesus did not know. Some people are boggled by that. Wait a minute. You said he's fully God. God's omniscient. God knows everything. How could he not know something? Omniscience appears to be one of those things that he set aside not taking advantage of it, except as God revealed truth to him in an ever-unfolding way as he matured and grew. And evidence of it would be the Garden of Gethsemane, of course. People can't understand that. They say, wait, he's the Son of God. Why was he praying on his knee? Why was he sweating, as it were, great drops of blood Why was he agonizing and saying, Father, does it have to be this way? I have a different way, but I will yield to your way, my way, your way. You see? Wait a minute. Is he God? Yes, he is God. But he's also man. A real man. Who even had to agonize, at that point anyway, to bend his will to the will of his Father. I've marveled for decades over the statement of Hebrews 5.8. I still don't understand it, but I look at it and behold it and marvel at it. The simple statement about Jesus in Hebrews 5.8 is this. He learned obedience from the things that he suffered. I can assure you, friends, Jesus of Nazareth was not the divine Watson supercomputer Put away your ideas of that kind of a Jesus. This was a real man. He went from infant to boy to man in a process of human development. Indeed, he was different. Indeed, he had the Spirit of God revealing things to him. In fact, when we speak briefly about his baptism, you'll need to note the fact that he was given the Holy Spirit without limit in his baptism, seeming to say that there God was outpouring and opening to him new things and, and greater understanding than ever before. But the Jesus we would worship is not the Jesus that you might read about in a document called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. 
There are a whole raft of these things. Some people think they, they contested to be books of Scripture that were rejected. They're so spurious for the most part that there never was a real contest. But the infancy Gospel of Thomas is a third or fourth century uh, collection of tales purporting to be about Jesus, the young man. Here's an example that's pretty typical of what's in there. Joseph one day is in the carpenter shop, and he cuts a board. And then he realizes, "Uh uh-oh, I've cut the board a few inches short. Now, you carpenters know that's an irremediable problem. You need a new board. But not a problem for the infancy gospel of Thomas. Guess what his little boy Jesus did? He stretched the board miraculously to the exact length that Joseph needed. Well, that's just plain stupid. It didn't happen. It's silly. It's a fanciful imagination of man. It doesn't accord in any way with the down-to-earth, real boy Jesus that we have in this small glimpse in the second chapter of Luke. Don't worship Jesus who's an idol, who's a fantasy. Worship the real Jesus. A real boy becoming a real man. Now, secondly and quickly, he was a lost boy who found his father's house. I use the word lost with tongue-in-cheek. Jesus was never actually lost, but his parents thought he was lost. A lost boy who found his father's house. You have to have a picture of what was going on on this trip from Nazareth to Jerusalem for Passover. Nazareth I would try to pluck out a Lancaster County town to be an equivalent, but I'm afraid to do it because somebody lives there and they'll be insulted, so I won't. But Nazareth is a one-horse town. Nazareth was little more than a crossroads, hardly a village in the time of Jesus, very small. It was not on a trade route, and so you basically, living in Nazareth, saw day-to-day the 50, 100, 150 people who lived in your immediate vicinity. You didn't get out into the wider world. There was no CNN, no Fox News. You didn't know what was going on beyond 10 miles away. Now, from that little town, 80 miles from Jerusalem, four days walk was 20 miles a day. was pretty typical hike in those days. Imagine being a 12-year-old boy living in that little town once a year going to Jerusalem. Let me tell you, if you've gone to New York City to see a Broadway show, the cultural span that you take from any place in Lancaster County to New York City seems perhaps vast. It isn't even close to the cultural jump that Jesus had from Nazareth to Jerusalem. Not even close. There they would go for this great festival, the greatest of the Jewish festivals, the great festival where the blood of lambs was brought and blood on the altar and all these things, all Jewish men had to go. And uh, they were supposed to go as often as they could. They didn't all go every year, but they were supposed to go as often as possible. So you had tens of thousands of Israelite pilgrims from scattered lands all over the place, North Africa, Egypt, everywhere that they lived, People of different skin color, people speaking different languages, dressed completely differently, pouring into town, camping out on the hillsides all around, turning a a relatively small city into a megalopolis for one week. 20,000 sheep brought in just for the sacrifices, made a little bit of dust and fuss. Orchestras of the priests playing drums and trumpets and lyres, 
not 10 or 20, not a, not a little ensemble like we have on our balcony sometimes. 200 priests in an orchestra. Three or 400 priests in a great choir, men's voices thundering the praises of Jehovah. Jesus was 12 years old. In later Judaism, at 13, he would be bar mitzvah, a man. That ritual had not yet come into practice. But he was right at the edge of where he would be regarded for manhood. Just imagine a boy bursting with adolescent curiosity from a mountain, small town, thrown into this. Wow! You know, if you said to someone in one weekend, we're going to go to the Phillies, the Eagles, the circus, and see a Broadway show all within 48 hours, this spectacle that Jesus saw was greater. And there he was in the midst of it. Now, you know, I've had a common experience several times in several churches. It has happened in this church. If I'm talking about your family, I apologize in advance because I don't know who I'm talking about. But I've had this experience. Here's something that happens. Family in the church, two cars. For some reason, mom and dad have to arrive at church in the Sunday morning in different cars. Maybe dad's an usher and has to be here earlier. Mom's a Sunday school teacher, has to be here early. Guess what? The three kids arrive with somebody, and hopefully they leave with somebody. But I've been here on the occasions when one doesn't leave. Mom's car's down there, and she's got two, and she's pretty sure the third one is, is in dad's car leaving from this parking lot. And guess what? That little one is here. And the pastor ends up holding her hand as she cries and Where's my mom? Mom comes, of course. Because I've experienced that, I can understand what happened with Jesus in Jerusalem. You need to understand, there was a caravan from Nazareth. They didn't travel in little tiny groups of one or two. There were bandits. The roads were dangerous. You traveled in a caravan of 100 or 150. And the more would join in, the better, the safer you would be. And it's easy to see that somehow they didn't notice that the 12-year-old boy wasn't in the entourage until first campfire. Where's Jesus? I don't know. I thought he was with you. He was lost. And so they had to go back a day, and then the text would have us understand apparently they spent another day, three in total, before they found him in the temple courts of Jerusalem. Now, what were these temple courts, just for a moment? They were spaces as as big as athletic fields. The Temple Mount, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, is on a high plateau, and everything's level all around it for a large area. And all kinds of things happened in those courts. Markets and groups teaching and singing and praying and doing things. But close to the temple itself would be the rabbis, the teachers, And students would come and ply them with questions. Rabbi, what do you think about this in Deuteronomy? And the rabbi would give his learned answer. In one of those groups, they found the 12-year-old boy. There have been paintings of this, various pictures of Jesus, and they usually seem to feature him and show him like he's sort of declaring or teaching. The passage seems to imply more of a passive structure. It says he was listening to them and asking them questions. 
wasn't rude or impertinent towards these scholars. He, in his adult ministry, had occasion to say to some of them things that they didn't want to hear. But for now, it was the amazing quality of his questions for one so young about the Scriptures that turned every head and made the old men with their long beards whisper among themselves, who is this boy that he knows the Scripture so well? All of a sudden, this real boy, this human boy, is starting to be something else, evidently. And now a third point, a quick one. Jesus was a son, submissive to a heavenly father, and obedient to earthly parents. You see Mary come running in. This isn't the only time she has a bit of a rebuke there at the wedding of Cana, remember? Son, you need to do this. And he had to say, Mother, in our words, back off. She says, Son, why have you treated us like this? Well, isn't that natural for a parent to say? She feels pretty upset. But the important thing is the response of Jesus in verse 49. Again, the only record of words we have from him until he was 30 years old. And he says, Mother, why did you wonder where I was? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now, he said something right there that was absolutely revolutionary. My father was not what you called God. He was talking about Yahweh, the Most High, the Absolutely Holy One, the Creator, The Jew did not utter the name of God. They didn't even write out Yahweh. They wrote a couple of initials that stood for it because they thought to write it out would be a blasphemy. And here's a boy who doesn't say Yahweh. He says, my father. Something's going on here. Something completely new because, ladies and gentlemen, if you will remember the charge that in the end caused the Sanhedrin and everyone else to call out, crucify him. It was that he calls himself the Son of God. Even here, he's hinting at what men would later say was the ultimate blasphemy. He is God's Son with a special calling and a special vocation upon his life. And notice the imperative nature. He says, I must do this. Didn't you know I must? I have no option to do otherwise. God's house is is like a great magnet to me, mother. I must be close to the place where they're discussing the deep things of God and his scripture and his revelation to men. I must. But then after that, it says, he went home and was obedient in Nazareth to his parents for 18 silent years. You wonder how much did Jesus really know right then? And here we're on speculative territory. I can't pronounce on this. I'll tell you what I think. You ask, did he see the cross right then? Did he know that he was going to be rejected and die in that horrible way and rise again and ascend to heaven? I would say to you, I'm not sure that he knew it all at that point. The sense I have of the Scripture is God was opening it to him, revealing it to him as he moved forward obediently. And I believe his baptism was particularly an important advance 
as the Holy Spirit was poured out upon him. And God told him what he needed to know as he needed to know it, I think. Well, what does all this mean to us real quickly today? There are whole layers of application here, but I'll, I'll give you a couple layers quickly. First, I would have you see here that God has great respect for children in their physical and intellectual and spiritual development. He trusted his son to be one. And to be one, not a child who would be raised so he would go to Oxford University in some center of privilege in the world, but in a peasant town, a peasant household, where he would be taught by the simplest people. And he would be obscure for 90% of his time on earth. The normalcy of the development of Jesus from boy to man reminds us God works in our world, in our families, in our children. As we grow, as we develop, we all need to take baby steps, not only of physical life, but of spiritual life. And God honors the stages of development that we're all in, and they're all different. We have to crawl before we run. But then more than that, there's a lesson here for parents, I believe. And it's something you might not even see exactly in verse 41, but it hit me hard. Parents, you have a role, a tremendous role, to shape the spiritual, intellectual, and physical development of your children. And the spiritual part especially, here's why I say verse 41. Verse 41 says, every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. What's so remarkable about that? Only men in Israel were required to go. If it was too expensive, you didn't have to take the wife and children. You didn't have to go every year, and a lot of Israelites did not go every year. They only went every few years, or or five or ten. Joseph went every year and took the family every year. Here were simple parents who felt it was important to honor God's Sabbath, to honor God's temple, to know God's Word, to pray. Parents, it is so important. Don't reach the stage where I am, where now you're looking at the grandchildren and you're saying, oh, I'm, I'm not regretting that much, but many my age are, and saying, oh, I just wish I would have taken advantage of the opportunity to pray more with my child or read the Scripture. It goes fast. It goes really fast. I can't believe my oldest child is 40 years old. And I thank God she's walking with Christ. I thank God my sons are walking with Christ. But it's almost, I have to say, in spite of me. Thirdly, I think Jesus here offers a supreme example to every young person and every child. His obedience to his parents and yet his belief that he had a higher calling to his heavenly Father. You know, Jesus was unique, but it's the same for our children. We have more boys and girls at the early service. We have more teenagers in this service. But young people, it's not optional that you obey your parents. It's not biblically optional. The Scripture says, honor your father and mother. They're not perfect people, but they're God's people in your life. And you're to honor them and obey them. But 
It's even possible that they might mess up. They might even ask you to do something contrary to the Word of God, to lie, to steal, to cheat. You don't have to obey that. But it is important for you to know you have an even higher calling than obeying your mother and father. Young people, that calling is to seek the call of your heavenly Father on your life and to know that He calls you to come and be His disciple and trust in Him and put your faith in Jesus and be His adopted child. There's all a great mystery in this passage. The Trinity is displayed here in the wonder of the manhood and the godhood of Jesus. Mary's left pondering as we're pondering. We can't figure it out. It's a great mystery. But it was by this great Son of God descending into our flesh, not a likeness of our flesh, but our flesh without sin, that allowed us to know we would be lifted one day to the heights that he dwells in right now. An old father of the church put it in a single sentence. He became what we are so that we may become what he is. Thanks be to God. Our Father, thank you for this marvelous boy and teenager named Jesus. Thank you for not only what he did in his adult life, But to glimpse him here, even living under the direction of Mary and Joseph, and yet seeking you as a first matter, he represents that that we want for our children in a lesser manner. For they are not divine, and yet they too have this calling to seek you. Father, help fathers and mothers and help young people to conform to this pattern, to grow in wisdom and stature, as you work in their lives. For Jesus' sake, amen.